The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Okay, we are live. I'm Bill Amadeo from the Madison Amadeo on Grable Associates. How you how, how doing? My name is Torsho Feaster. Obviously, I'm back again, so thank you, brother, for having me. I appreciate of course. it. Of course. Uh, as you all probably already know, I am running for District Court, 14A District Court, uh, for the Ipsy City seat to replace the Honorable Judge Tabby, who is retiring. So I'm glad to be here to talk about issues and to try to uh, uh, introduce myself to you all. So thanks again for having me. Yep. And we're going to have a couple um, key issues that people have been asking about today. Okay, let's talk. And, you know, as, as we start, I'm wearing um, an Ampipe Bulldog shirt that Scott Grable got me as a bonus for winning a case. Love it. And you're dressed. Oh, yeah. I got, my, I got my campaign shirt on. So <laughs> as I've mentioned before, even when we're in downtime working on a Saturday, he's dressed better than me. Oh, stop. So. Stop. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So one of the key issues today is driving while lawful, legally suspended, yeah. DWLS. Um, for you guys in Washington, I get calls about this all the time. People can lose their driver's license when they're young, right. and then they're always trying to play catch up. You know, what happens? Can I get my driver's license back? And I think this is an issue that's actually near and dear it is. to the district court. It is. Because how many people do you get as a public defender that have driving while suspended? I mean, it's a ton of people who have the same problem. This is the same problem. I've been doing this almost 15 years now. Right. Okay. And so this same problem is something I've been dealing with every day for the last 15 years. And really, I mean, it's getting a little bit better now since the driving responsibility situation has changed. But a ton of my clients have, uh, have no license uh, histories and have those things on their records where they have those driving <coughs> responsibility fees right. that continue to hamper them and and keep them from having a chance to get their license in the future. What are you easy to say? It's driving in fear, right? Yes. I mean, because people are going to drive. Oh, yeah. No matter what. One way or another. They have children. They got to go to the school. They got to yeah. go to the doctor. They got to go to work. They're going to drive. So whether we're giving them a license or we aren't giving them a license, or whether we're holding these fees over their head for years or we're not, people are going to drive. It almost seems as if jail time in some sense is more less painful yeah. than losing your license for an extended period of oh, time. I, I definitely agree. So what do you do as a, a district court judge on an issue like this? Like how do we help people in Washington keep their license or maintain, get their license back? Right. So like I said, it, it, it's a horrible situation that people have to deal with. Uh, one of the best things I've seen that happens here is what Judge Washington does. And so Judge Washington is the 14B district court judge, and she does a great job of having people's driving records right there in front of her on the bench. Okay. And she's able to go through their records with them right there on the bench, tell them, pay this clearance fee, take care of this, we'll get you licensed. And so the whole goal has to be to get people licensed one way or another. And so what, what I see is that if we don't do that, then what we have is people who are driving in fear, people who are driving scared. Okay. And then when the police get behind them, they, they, they flick them, and they're going to pull them over for a tail light out or for a, not using a turn right. signal, then some people don't stop. And then they take off running and sure. get a felony. They got a fleeing and eluding your stare. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. because they're running because they know they have <coughs> a valid license. Up until the whole clean slate bill, we saw many times that Michigan is one of the most difficult states with pulling people's driver's license. Right. In fact, I can tell you in Jersey, where I grew up, it took a lot to lose your driver's license. Really? Here, yeah. Here it seems takes a little. It's very little. I mean, I know people with six OUILs, and I'm not endorsing that by any stretch, right. but they're able to drive. Okay. They may make them pay fines through the nose. Right. They may attach their wages, but they realize we can't just take their driver's license because the children are going to be hurt by that. Right. we got to remember something. This is non-assaulted crimes. Right. We're talking 93-day misdemeanors that could hardly affect people's right. lives. Which it would be better for people, like you said, not do, do, do some jail time. And keep your license. Because, I mean, we have these, these charges now where people will take a, a plea to a charge, and as part of that, there's a mandatory hard suspension, or right. there's a, you know, a, a suspension that comes along with it. And, yeah, we want to teach people a lesson. We want to be punitive yeah. at certain times, but uh, we also have to realize the, the realistic life part of what we're doing here. And what's really happening is that we're hurting people having the ability to function day to day, to go to work, to you know, keep our economy going, to get their kids to school, to have their kids be, you know, to learn and grow. And so we're setting them up for failure. And so we have to do a better job in terms of trying to navigate that than what we've been doing so far. Now, you were a big name in the Genesee County area. Did you see this issue in Genesee as often as Washington, less often, more often? More. Okay. More. more. It's, 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 <laughs> I see it every day here. 
Uh, it was all the time there. All day, like, every day? All day, every day. Right. And there are judges there who, you know, have that as a huge pet peeve. Because one of the things that happened there is that, you know, people don't have a license. As a result, they can't get auto insurance. Right. And so that's right. like the huge, one of the biggest problems in the county because they don't have auto insurance. Because mm-hmm. one judge told me he thinks it's in the city of Flint, he thinks it's 40% of drivers do not have valid licenses. Wow, that's a big number. And that's what one judge told me. And so that those people are driving <coughs> without auto insurance. And so if they crash and they hit you, who's taking care of the bill? Right. Who's taking care of the, the, the damaged property? And it's just a huge issue. And that's why I've made such a stink about it, such a push to try to get those driver responsibility fees taken out. And why I reached out to my legislators and our governors to try to have them change things. And it's finally going in the right direction. I know in Oakland County, um, before Karen McDonald's made some good changes, but they were actually locking people up on a regular basis really? for driving while suspended. There was this one judge that gave a guy a year for DWLS3. I got him out. Yeah. I like appealed it, but I mean, whoa. Yeah, that's crazy. Because now, I mean, the, you're not driving unlawfully because you're cruising. You're right. usually trying to support your family. Right. And that's just an issue. Like, I really think we got to work as a team to try to help people get their license back. Yes, yes. I mean, like, you have I, no choice but to drive. Like, I had one guy, good guy, military vet, served in the Marines. Right. Came home, got a got a, 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 a OUI, OWI. Okay. Uh, lost his license. Got caught driving without it, got it further suspended, got caught again. And so he's driving from uh, Genesee County to Livingston County, okay. trying to support himself every day working. Sure. Good guy, no prior record aside from those two, those charges, those driving charges. And now he's having the most impossible time getting his license back. Not going to stop him from driving. No. Still going to drive, going to go to work. But he's really having a difficult time because of it. What advice do you have for people in Washington County that are driving unlawfully? Is there anything they could do? I mean, the main thing you have to do is pull your driver record. That's the first thing. Driver abstract? Yeah, pull your abstract. I think it's what, $12? Yeah. Secretary of State, something like that. See what's on your record. And then see if you can go through and pay those clearance fees and those little things you have to pay to be eligible to get it back. And obviously hire this good man here, if you have to, <laughs> who can get you on the right path and get your license back for you. But as you know, as a judge, uh, we have to do everything we can to help the public sure. with that issue. The clean slate bill, is that going to help with this issue? It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. Okay. It's, there's, there's provisions in that legislation to allow people to get their license back, to stop being so punitive about the, the previous uh, charges and convictions you have on your record, and to open that door to getting your license back and driving legally. And that's the kind of stuff we have to have. Another issue we're going to talk about today is HIDA. Oh, yeah. The Homes Useful Training Act. And HIDA just expanded. It did. Can you ex- okay, explain to the people what HIDA is and the expansion? Okay, yeah. So HIDA is the Homes Useful Training Act. Uh, basically what that's for is for useful offenders. So people from 18, used to be 18 to 21, uh, you were eligible to be a part of a HIDA program. So if you're a first-time person committing a crime uh, and you plead guilty to the crime, then you can have that, you can enter a plea that the judge holds, so to speak. And if you complete the probationary period, it vanishes. It didn't happen. You can say you're not a felon. You can say you don't have it on your record. You can go on with your life. Uh, that expanded about a year or two ago, where it expanded up to 20, uh, 26 years old. So uh, between 21 and 26, you have to have prosecutor approval. But uh, all the way from 18 to 26, you have the possibility of pleading guilty to a charge. If you complete the probationary period, then that will come, not be on your record. You can say you were never convicted of a crime, and you can go forward with your life. This is huge for our community. One of the reasons they expanded, the legislature expanded, was because they said that juveniles mind actually, Develop. until you're 30, yep, still it's still developing. developing. Yep. You know, um, What do you think about height as a whole? Is it good enough? Is it right? Do we need to make well, improvements on it? How, how does the district court play a role in that? Height is good. Height is good. It opens a lot of doors. But like you said, if the legislature legislature found that the mind still expanding to thirty, then right. maybe Hyde should go until thirty. Right. Okay. But you know, so it, it has some room to grow, but we're moving in the right direction, uh, and obviously broadening broadening it is better. Uh, the problem, part of the problem, is the prosecutor approval. Yeah. Uh, that that's a problem, because, you know, if the judge and the defense attorney and the defendant think it's a good thing, it probably should be good enough. You really probably shouldn't have to have prosecutor approval, but. That, that's what's in there right now. Uh, I personally, I think we can do more. 
which is why Judge Simpson and I are working to expand the program and make a youth court here. Can you explain what that youth court is? Yes, yes, yes. So youth court is going to be a program very similar to, to Holmes without having to go through the, uh, the prosecutor approval kind of deal uh, where we're able to bring in young people who are you know first-time offenders who we can divert them through the system. We can get them back on the right track, get them into school, get them into training programs, get them uh, certificates, degrees, all that kind of stuff, and then to get the case off their record completely. So it's another tool in addition to how to help more people. And so I think it would be a great program. One of the things I've been seeing with Haida is um, on CSCs, yeah. the Romeo and Juliet statue. Yes. Okay, yeah. so here's the thing. Let's be clear about this. If somebody truly committed a CSC to force a coercion, they should burn. Obviously. But if a senior in high school was, was having consensual sex with a sophomore in high school, because right now, guys, a 17-year-old having consensual sex with a 15-year-old is a 15-year felony and sex registry in the state of Michigan. Right. Haida can be a reluctant aspect in certain prosecutors' offices. Right. I'll say, I've had good experience in Washington with this, actually, okay. but there are some other counties yeah. where it's like... No, they shouldn't be having sex yeah. over the age of 18. We're not, we're not going to support. We're not going right. to do anything for them. We're going to put that felony on their record and saddle them with that with that bad start to their adulthood. I mean, if two teenagers are having consensual sex, right. I don't think that's something that should face a 15-year felony where a kid's life could be destroyed. I hear you. You know, um, and we see it's one of the caveats of Haida. There is a CSC3, which falls under the stat rape statute. Right. And Romeo and Juliet, there's a four-year gap between two teenagers having consensual sex. There's a way for them to get Haida. But the problem is with Haida, it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition, it's, it's you know? And it's almost like drugs are deemed more lenient yeah. than stupid fights right. at times. Right. You know, and I think a lot of that depends on the district court because one thing is we want a kid trying to plead in district court he's going to plead as opposed to going over a circuit right. not to avoid the felony if that's possible, right. you know? And obviously, there's sometimes if a juvenile killed somebody, well, we can't protect them right. there. But there are kids do stupid things at times. Right. I was a kid. I did <laughs> a lot of stupid things. So, you know, we make mistakes. We learn from our mistakes. And we hope and pray we get a second opportunity. I had a kid, and I won't mention the county's name, but he stole a bottle of vodka from okay. Myers. Right. Going to college, and the prosecutor didn't want to get me hired. Really? No priors. For retail for a third. Wow. I mean, and the judge, I worked around it because the kid was under right, 21. Right, yeah. Prosecutor fought like hell against that. Yeah. And I'm just like, what's the big deal? It's not assaulted behavior. It's a bottle of liquor. Right. I get it. But, you know, I mean, I know I'm pro defense, but yeah. we got to look at every allegation right. separately. Right. You know, and it, it's sad sometimes. It is sad. And there's no question about it. It's much easier to get a white kid hide than a black kid hide. I mean, we, see, a, we see that. We see that all day long. Yeah, all day long. You know. Same thing with, like, like I said, I think I told you last time, uh, like with drug court. Uh, we're seeing that there's, there's a substantially more uh, white people who are coming through the drug court program than there are people of color. And so that's that's more on the defense attorneys also for not <coughs> putting up people of color to go through that kind of program. And so we have to do a better job of making sure that it's equitable and everyone's having the opportunity to get their records clear. And I'll tell you, when it comes to a specialty court as a defense lawyer, right. I don't just fill out the form. Right. I want to give you a memo. I yes. want to... I right. want to say, Do judge, everything listen, I can. everything I can. Yeah. You're not always going to win, right. but you got to advocate hard, especially when there's a minor on this. You really do. You know? And I do think, even the judges don't like it, if they know you're working hard for your client, they're going to give you respect They'll for respect that. It. You yeah, know? they will. Tell me about sentencing guidelines, because this is an issue we hear about all the time. Yeah. And it's, it obviously has to do with felonies, not misdemeanors, but right. Right. what are sentencing guidelines? And are they discretionary or mandatory? Yeah, so sentencing guidelines, obviously, when I started practicing, they were... Uh, mandatory. They were mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically what you had was you had uh, a grid. And you take someone's prior record, you take their offense, and then you uh, score <coughs> them, and then they come down to a point on the grid, and you say that's how much time they have to give. Okay. They're going to be in that block. And so when I started practicing, it was hard to work around those guidelines. You had to really do some finessing to try to figure out how to get your client into a place where they may not go to prison. Right. Where they may be able to just do county time. Uh, but now things have gotten better. Uh, the legislature has made some changes. And what we're finding now is that the guidelines are now discretionary. So it wouldn't come in front of me as a district court judge. But right. as a circuit court judge, the judge can say, okay, uh, on the grid, you should go to prison for uh, 20, 21 to 48 months, something like that, on the minimum. And then the judge can say, 
it's your first time, uh, you made a mistake, you're acknowledging it, you have took this class, you've gone through this program, you've done a lot to change your life, you have these letters of recommendation from your community, right. I'm not going to sentence you in those guidelines. I'm going to give you uh, six months in the county and we'll call, and, and probation and we're not going to have you go to prison. And so the guidelines of really uh, being discretionary have opened up what a judge can do and let a judge be a judge. The right. ju that's the judge's job. Because judge was kind of handcuffed before. Yeah, yes, yeah. Judge was not able to really make those kind of decisions. I had many judges tell me who would tell me, "Well, my hands are tied. Uh, I have to sentence you within this grid. I'm going to sentence you to the minimum in here in the grid, but I have no choice to do anything else because of the guidelines." Right. And so now that the guidelines are discretionary and not mandatory, judges now say, uh, "I acknowledge the guidelines. I'm going to sentence here." And they do what they want to do based on what they think is best and their judgment, which is why we appoint and elect them to use their judgment. And so I'm glad they're discretionary now. What I got a question from Nancy Gordon, she's a lawyer in Lenaway. What are your thoughts on the changes to height that took effect last year? That's the expansion. Yes. Um, yeah, so obviously I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the expansion. Uh, as Bill was saying, I think it should probably be a little more. It should be expanded a little bit further. I think we could, if the mind is still developing for people until age 30, then why are we cutting it off at the 20, 26th birthday? I think we should maybe go up to 30. And I think we can do better with that. And I think we can open that door for those people whose minds are still developing and who have no no prior record. And we're trying to get them taken care of and keep their records clear. Um, I had a guy call me this morning, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, no prior record. Okay. Uh, uh, passed, passed out in his car in a parking lot. Mm -hmm. uh, the police uh, pulled up on him, uh, saw he had an open container in the car. Okay. And they charged him. Uh, and he's... He was 26 and three months when this happened. Oh. <laughs> and so I said, you know, and this is up in Saginaw County. And I said, you know, can, can you get a, can, 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 I said, so you're 26 and you can't get HIDA. I said, so what are they offering? Deferral? Yeah. And I'm like, are they offering a deferral? He said, they don't want to give me a deferral. I said, come on. I said, so this is a situation where this person's going to be stuck with something under a record, more yeah. likely than not, because he made one mistake, <coughs> okay, 26 years old and three months. And now he's stuck and handcuffed with a, a charge. You know, it's funny. You did you do anything besides criminal and private practice? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because uh, I, I really as a criminal lawyer. Yeah, family bankruptcies, landlord tenant, wills and trusts. Okay. So. And I've done a little family law. Okay. Jen Keller's my firm's a good family lawyer, but usually when a family law case comes in, I give it to her. You, know? you take that. But I am seeing something where the criminal law, criminal justice aspect, could play a role in family law. Oh yeah. Like. A mother with a misdemeanor oh, yeah. cannot use against her in a custody proceedings, yes, even yes. if it's from eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. You and know? the judge can look at that and say, okay, if the husband comes in and says, you know, well, she's an alcoholic, uh, she has a prior OWI on her record from eight years ago, and the judge can factor that into who gets custody. Yeah, and that's amazing yeah. to me because, you know, I mean, people make mistakes. Right. It doesn't mean they're not a good. Sometimes they get those misdemeanors for they're even a parent. Right. You know, but they that's still, they still use them. against them. Yeah. yeah, I had somebody had a minor in possession when they were in college, yeah. <laughs> and 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 then I think they also had got an OWI a few years later. But they had been ten years without anything, but it still got brought up in cross examination in a in a custody case, and so that's how it kind of works. It's, and I will say, where I grew up in Atlantic City, which is a really bad place. Um, I, I will say that I didn't have any criminal activity because my aunt would have just kicked my ass. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes even from good parents, yeah. you know, kids can make mistakes. And I think we need to understand our kids. Yes, yes. And like I said, we, we have to do a better job of, of parenting our kids sometimes. Uh, you had an aunt. I had a dad who would kick my butt, and so that's why I do what I can with the big brothers, big sisters, and sure. boys and girl club to try to give back to our youth and to be that example in their lives. Uh, my my old secretary's son uh, didn't really have a male uh, influence in his life, mm -hmm. and so I've been really big helping Dylan out and trying to mentor him so that he knows. So when he messes up, he got to come see me. Right, and that's a problem. <laughs> so he's doing much better now. One of the things I see, and we're going a little off topic right now, but I'm going back to my own neighborhood now. Many kids, it was going to be normal for them to end up in the system. Oh, yeah. Because their dad was in the system or their grandfather was in the system. Yeah. What do we do with those youth at the district court level? Because I always said this before. This is why this election is so important. The district court judge is the closest to the community. Right. You know, it is like a block away, in my opinion. Here I am, a kid 
living in the community, and here's a district court. Right. I need the circuit court obviously plays a vital role, but the district court has such a pulse on the community. Yes. What do you do with kids in that situation? How can we help them? I'm sure the youth court. Yes, the youth court will do will something help. with that. But like, like, like you already know. Uh, the judge has to do everything they can on the bench sure. to try to redirect the, the people who come through the, the system. If you come through the system, I know when I was in, when I was practicing before in private practice, the judge would say, well, you know, where's your father at? Where's your mother yeah, at? Yeah. And he would try to find out uh, what the kid's background was. And he said, you know, do you want to follow in those footsteps? And that's kind of how you have to be able to relate to kids sometimes and try to understand where they're coming from. Right. And additionally, <coughs> uh, like you said, we're the people's mm-hmm. court. You are, court, absolutely. It's the, it's, 110%. We're right there with the community. We're dealing with our residents every day. And so what's really big is if we have our judges involved in our community. Right. Not just 8 to 5, 9 to 5, but after hours. And be uh, be present. And it's kind of like the, the idea of community policing. When you had an officer in your community, then he knew the kids in that community. Right. And those kids would, would, would respect him. And he, could, he would know if they were involved in other kind of stuff. It's kind of how we have to have our judges. Our judges can't be in just an ivory tower all the time. Right. And so, you know, I, I go out to, you know, Park Ridge and the other areas, and I try to get involved in the community, know the people who I would be a judge for. Sure. And so that's what we have to be able to do uh, if we're going to do these kind of roles. That was a big thing in Atlantic City. Like, a cop would start making some money, mm-hmm. and they would leave yeah, the area. They'd move out. They'd move out. Yeah. Um, and the ones that moved out didn't get the same respect as the ones that the stayed, same. but... In essence, they were all part of the criminal justice system. It made right. things difficult. Right. Community policing is a huge, huge, huge thing. Yes, it is. It's good for young people to know that this officer is not only trying to protect the community, but he's a member of that community. Right. right. That's so critical. And they don't see him in an adversarial role necessarily. Right. If you're living there, if you're there every day, they say, oh, that's Officer Smith. Right. And they don't look at you like, oh, there's another cop here. They look at you as a member of the community. Of course, the male or female with the badge or gun could actually be a role model right. as opposed to somebody you're fearing that's going to lock you up. Right. And, and so that's what's huge. It's a big thing. Yeah. All right. Um, you are doing a show with your niece, Jackson, I believe, coming up? I am. I am. I'm going to be on Yancey's show uh, next week. I think we're doing it on Wednesday. So next is week. Is it Wednesday? Wednesday? Yes, sir. Make sure you post that. I will. We'll tag it. Your niece is, um, she might be mayor in Lansing one day. Uh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yes. Good friend of mine for a long yeah. time ago. I I'm said, I appreciate the hook. I'm looking forward to being on her show. Uh, she was telling me about her about the radio program and her parents who started the radio yeah. program. And it just sounds like it's an awesome opportunity. Looking forward to meeting her and looking forward to being on the show. Yeah, she wanted to do an exclusive on you in the newspaper, too, because the Chronicle News, it's an old school Lansing paper yeah. and show. So. She's um she's good people. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to meeting her. Like I said, we had a great conversation the other day, and I'm I'm thinking we're going to be able to continue that on here. So tell people how to reach you. Hey, yeah, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, my name's Torsho Feaster. You can reach me at feasterforjudge uh, at gmail dot com. You can also reach me uh, on my cell phone seven three four. Four eight zero eight one three one. Please don't don't be shy. Reach out, text me. Let's talk about issues in this community and find some solutions. And when is the primary? August second. So please uh, okay. go out and vote. August second. So I, I appreciate mean, your support. It feels like it's a while away, but it's gonna go quick. Yeah, well, super quick. Sometime. Yeah. It's, gonna go quick. <laughs> it's gonna fly by. It's gonna go quick, and we need this guy on the bench. So I right, good see you again. Always. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Fear and Loathing in Atlantic City. That was the title that came to me last night. Um, was reliving this story based on some conversations I had with family members yesterday. And it's a story I don't know if I was really comfortable talking about. But um, I figured, why not? Josh Strickland told me he needs more content. I think sometimes the best content comes from just being raw and letting it rip. So I'm going to attempt to do that today. It's been a weird weekend. You know... I was talking to some clients today. I take this profession so god serious. It's weird. You know, sometimes I wish I could be one of those lawyers that just goes through the motions. It would make life so much more simplistic. But when I see people in our profession 
just disrespect everything we worked for. When I watch and see people make a mockery of the criminal justice system, it just pisses me off beyond belief. I just feel like our role is to preserve the Constitution and make it a live document. Make it to that point where today we're actually trying to do the right thing by people. Not just get a wrongful prosecution. Not just, you know, make money. And the client, you know, it's Mother's Day. And Mother's Day is always a tough day for people. I know it's a rough day for me. I was lucky enough to have um, three mother figures in my life. My aunt who raised me. My mom who had me real young. Who was a big sister. And uh, Miss Gandia who played such a vital role in my life. And days like this, you know, you just wish you could call them. And talking to a client <coughs> who's also a friend of mine on the phone today. When a mother's gone, there's always guilt. There's guilt. You didn't spend enough time with them or you could have done more during that time you were there. And, you know, I want this individual to remember one thing. You were a great son. She was proud of you and still is proud of you. And I know today is tough. Keep your head up. You're a good guy. And try to let that guilt stuff go. I know it's not easy because it's always an internal process, but we do a lot of shit. Mother's Day can bring out the best of things and the worst of things. It can bring out sadness. And as I transition to this story, I kind of look at things and wonder to myself, this day, what happened? Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? It helped mold things where they are today. It also took a lot out of me. Um, it's the early 90s in Atlantic City. It was a snowy day. And... Life was rough, just bad time. You know, I remember that day specifically because some of the Margate kids were making fun of my clothing. And uh, I was in classes with a lot of Margate kids who I thought were assholes and then going home to the hood. And I'm in my room on 109 North Willow Avenue. Go right up the steps. Here's my room with its perfect bird's eye view of Pitney Village. And I had a breakdown, you know? I think a lot of people have breakdowns and they should get people to talk to. And I tried to talk, but it just wasn't happening. And I'm in my room and Odie and Scruffy, my two dogs, swept the room with me. And Odie was a great old dog. He was a rescue dog. He was a protector of the family. And Scruffy was this little Maltese Terrier. I've talked about Scruff before. I found him in Atlantic City. Somebody left him stranded. And it's me, Odie, and Scruffy, and Stevie and Cubby, two of my cats. I'm in the room, and I'm pretty teary-eyed. I'm petting them. And I'm playing music on my, um, it was a tape deck at that point. And I hear this big boom, 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 like this thump come up, right? I don't know what it was. And this guy kicks in the door. And this guy kicks in the door and um, it's a robbery attempt, right? And he throws me up against the wall in my bedroom. And he's choking me out, and I'm gasping for air. And Odie and Scruffy are trying to attack him. I think the cats are clawing at him. And I'm trying to fight it off. And he and his friend, they took, like, the, uh, I guess it was a boombox at the time. And, like, $20 cash I had. And some baseball cards. 
And as my dogs are trying to protect me, I'm like fighting for their life. And if you ever have a gun really put to your head, it's like a cold feeling and you hear like, and you're thinking it's the end. And as he's pointing the gun at me after brutalizing me, he says, um, I say to him, don't hurt my dogs. It's one of those moments we were ready to die. And there's been a few moments in my life when I've been ready to die, and this was certainly one of them. And um, you're just sitting there, and you're staring down. And in this moment, even though you're terrified, you're not showing fear, right? And I'm worried, where's Aunt Mare? Where's Mom? Mom was working. Aunt Mare was sick in the living room. Grandpa was dying, and this guy's robbing us and his boys downstairs looking for loot or whatever. And that was, you know, that was just Ducktown in the 90s. And um, for whatever reason, he didn't shoot. Him and his friend rolled out. And afterwards, I just remember, like, this fear. Like, the fear was after the fact. It was like, what the f*** just happened here? And I wanted my animals protected. And... After that, it was, like, somber. I'm, like, petting the animals. I'm not crying at this point. I'm just confused. And where we come from, like, therapy wasn't really an option. Um, wasn't something we did. But what we do do is we talk to our priest. Because our priests are the ones that were the leaders. Remember that Saturday morning, I was still working at the directory. And I said to Father Sullivan, who was my priest, my role model, whatever, I need to talk to you. And he made it like it was the biggest favor in the world. He, won't, he says, fine, we'll talk. Thank you, Father. And as I proceed here, I want to reiterate the fact that the priests are like this positive leader. And let me be clear. If religion works for you, good. I'm not going to put somebody down for their belief system, and I think religion could be a wonderful thing. This story is one of the reasons why I'm really not religious today. I think I'm spiritual. But I turned to Sullivan, who was my figure of the Catholic faith, who I defended and lost jobs for later in life. And it's funny when you look back on things later in time, because sometimes when you look back on things, you analyze them, you get lost in the moment. And guys, let's be real. When we're in the moment, we're part of the process and in that goddamn moment, we lose sight of stuff. And I turned to Sullivan and I said, here's what happened. And, um, and he laughed. And I'm like, why are you laughing? They robbed us. I thought they were going to kill us. I was protecting my dog. I don't know. I don't want to live like this anymore. And I'm breaking down. Talking to the guy who was like a father figure to me. And he had big hands, right? And I'm really small at the time. Like, really f***ing small. And he, um... His back of the right hand. Smacked me. And I went flying a little bit. Like my nose was a little bloody. Like one of his rings hit it or something. And I'm kind of bleeding. And I'm hurt that he hit me. And I looked at myself in this mirror in his little office. And I could see the blood coming off my nose. And I can't tell you, here's this big guy. He was heavy set. He was like 6'2", bigger guy. And 
He belittled what I told him. He just cracked me. And he was laughing. And I'm staring at myself. And I like wipe the blood from my nose and I get up. And with every ounce of fucking energy, power, so whatever I had, I just charged at him. And I threw him up against the uh, wall in his office and I'm choking him out. And I said, don't ever mock my family again. And don't ever put your fucking fat fucking hands on me again. You understand me, you piece of shit. And he looked terrified. And he knocked my hand away. And he said, I could see you're becoming a man. I respect that. What do you take from that? See, here's the thing. After that day, and there's been some moments in time, you know, but that day here was somebody who was like a father figure to me who just brutalized me. And I earned respect by fighting him back. And I think I was more fearful initially in Father Sullivan not respecting me than I was a gun being put in my face. It was a very weird time period for me at 15, 16 years old. And it wasn't long after that that a mock trial would come. And we'll get to the mock trial thing. Because I think mock trial is important, but other things keep getting in the way. And yesterday... Um, having a conversation with a family member. Just put it like that. And it's a family member that needed something from me. And uh, um, say, do you remember this story? And they're saying, not really. I said, well, I think you should remember it. And here I am like defending myself and my actions at 15 years old. Remember when Sullivan smacked me after we got robbed? And, you know, one of the reasons he smacked me was because I said to him, I think I need therapy. I think I need a counselor to talk to. And we don't really have the money. And back then there were, like, no programs out. And I don't know if he thought I was asking for money. I was asking for help. I was asking for something, you know. And he basically called me a pussy. And he smacked the shit out of me. And he laughed at my story. And, you know, hey, listen, there's greater tragedies in the world. But I don't know if in his own way he was trying to make me tough. Or if it just was who he was. He was kind of a warped guy. Lately... I've heard certain people in our industry that made comments about me. Certain people have threatened my career. Certain people who never could have lived a day in my life have said how they're going to make sure Bill Amadeo is not practicing law in the future. Let me tell you, mother or something. I've been through hell. I've seen the devil, and I've spit in his f***ing face. I'm not some pussy in an ivory tower who never had a fist fight in her god life that's going to talk shit. Fear to me is having a gun put to your head. Fear to me is having gangbangers that want to rape you and beat you. Fear to me is having a father figure beat the shit out of you with a ring on his finger. Fear to me is not some mother who like to talk on social media so in this war that we're engaging in my advice you want to come at me you better come a little harder the jail visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311 this is the jail visit on Shiawassee Radio this is the sixth tournament Cooley 
I reviewed a little bit about this before I came on air today. Some people have taken a lot of interest in these stories, but surprised the hell out of me. But as I was reviewing it, I think one of the allures of these stories is that it's not just about law school or about failures. It's like combining life. And when I looked at the sixth term at Cooley, some old blogs I did, some old notes from back in the day. And it was weird how, you know, life was like this collision course. This term, I think, uh, my childhood, and some things that happened in childhood really played, like, this vital role in the term. It was different based on that. So let's start with the classes. We had Wills with Emily Harbath. That's actually Wills Estates and Trust. That is a really critical course for those of you that want to do probate law. For the law students out there to ask me questions, I think um, Emily Horvath's class was excellent. She really broke things down in a manageable light. And with wills, estates, and trust, you know, that's a course that could probably be taught three terms instead of one. But she did a good job with it. And it really broke things down. What's required for a will in Michigan? How you do an estate? How you do a trust? And generally, this is a topic that's an essay on the Michigan bar exam as well. So it was a pretty valuable course. Good professor. Emily Horvath is now one of the leaders of bar prep at Cooley. And you know, for those of you that know, Cooley and I aren't on the best of terms. We'll talk about that later. I think she's a good professor. Good softball player too. Uh, professional responsibility with Peter Kempel. Kempel was a strange guy. This term, I had three courses on a Friday, and I would just, you know, study the rest of the week really hard, and I was working a part-time job as a journalist. Kempel's course was Friday night, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, I was in there with Brian Largy, who's a close friend of mine. He's like a brother of me, mine. Brian Largy on a Friday night course at Cooley, that was better than most things on reality TV because Brian was kind of burned out at that point. I will say that Professor Kempel was a very unique individual. And I don't think there were a lot of things you particularly learned in that course, but Kempel told me there's three things that a client wants, and these are things that stuck with me throughout my career. One... They want to win their case. Number two, they want to have their voice heard. And number three, they want to get this shit over with. Think about that. You have a case, right? You want to win. You want to win badly. Your client wants to express their thoughts. And you really do want to get it over with. Whether it's criminal or civil litigation, you know, closure is a big thing. And I think cases in some ways are like relationships. And people say I'm crazy if I say that. But, you know, there is a connection to the client. And then when the case is over, it's like the end of the relationship. And depending how the case went, it could be completely exhausting. And you get lost in that case. If somebody has a loved one who's facing 25 to life, you know you feel that like you're facing 25 to life at least if you're good and care you do you know and you know to be a really diligent lawyer there's gonna be boundaries that sometimes get blurred because you may care so much for that case that you could lose sight of things when you're juggling cases in different counties you know, it gets complicated at times. I've never given less than 110% on a case. And while that may make me good at what I do, it also is emotionally exhausting. But that's what it takes to really be unique in this field. And I always thought back to what Professor Campbell said. Client wants to win. Client wants to have their voice heard. Client wants to shit over with. That was more valuable than the 14 weeks in the final I had in his course that 
little tidbit of information late on a Friday night was essential. And it's something to live by. Then we had tax with Dan Schaefer. You know, and with Dan Schaefer, he was a cool guy. I had this major fear of math, and I think most people in law, you know, math was like our enemy at some point along the way. And Cooley really pushed their LLM program. So tax was a required course. Tax is not on the bar exam. So it was frustrating at first. I didn't want to do tax. I have so many things going on, but I'm going to take this tax course because I have to to be eligible to take the bar. Okay. And I met with Schaefer, and really good guy. Uh, like kind exchanges and all sorts of stuff like that. I don't remember any of it today because I didn't do tax law, but really good professor. And I was going to his office one day, and he said something which was pretty profound. I was stressed out, and it was a Thursday night. I'm in his office. And he said, Bill, you're as smart as anyone. You're more hardworking than anyone, but you are disorganized. And disorganization could be your downfall. You know, and it was really cool hearing that I was as smart as anybody out there and probably a harder work than anybody, but the organization has always been a problem. And he hit it spot on. But hearing that from someone, you're hearing the two positives with the one negative connotation. You know, it was cool. And it kind of gave you a little search, I'll get through tax. Tax and secure transactions are two courses that have mathematical components. Tax more than secured. But you need to do some basic math. You need to learn formulas. And it was like having like flashbacks to Algebra 1. It wasn't a good time at first, but meeting with Schaefer regularly really made things, really brought things together. So the professors that term were pretty good. What was happening at this point was you're in your sixth term, and in your sixth term, the bar is a year away. And one thing Emily Horvath used to tell us in course, in a class, first term, they scare you to death. Second year, they work you to death. And the third year, they bore you to death. What happens after that third year? You know, it's time for the bar exam. So you are in scoring position at this point, okay? To use the baseball analogy, you're between second and third, and you're taken off because the bar is going to happen within a year. You know, and you go back to Jersey, and, you know, mom's really sick. Like, she wasn't going to live much longer. And that was becoming more and more apparent. And you didn't know if you had to take a term off to take care of mom. The doctor said there wasn't much you could do. Um, She had her good days. She had her bad days. Like, the onion was peeling just how sick mom was. And it was... It was just kind of surreal. You know, you know your mom's going to die. It's going to happen. And law school is not going to stop. And do I take a term off? What if she lives another year? What do I do? Financial aid's there. Like, it was this situation. Aunt Mare, and Aunt Mare was always like my mom. And mom was like my big sister. Aunt Mare was a wreck. And she's just turning to me like, what do we do in this situation? You know, and I, I thought back... To a lot, I spent as much time with mom as I could. I thought back to a lot of times when I was in the hospital as a kid. And things started really, when I say they came full circle, they really did. I'll tell a quick story about this. In 1989, I was a kid in the hospital. And I had this real bad, um, there was like this parasite in my stomach. And I was supposed to die. And I remember being a child and telling Aunt Mary and Mom, look, I'm ready to die. I just, I was worried about how Aunt Mary and Mom would react to my death because I was on borrowed time. And Children's Hospital in Philadelphia saved my life. There's no question about that. But um, there were three kids in the hospital room with me. Damon, Donald, and Eric. Yeah. 
Damon and Donald has sickle cell anemia. And they weren't long for this world. And Eric had cancer. And I'm in this child's wing. And, you know, Damon and Donald died not long after. Eric, I kind of kept tabs on him. And as mom was dying, I'm having these flashbacks to these kids. And, you know, Eric kind of beat the odds a little bit. But he would die term break. Uh, my sixth term from law school. And that was heart-wrenching, you know. What I remember with those kids was we're in Children's Hospital. And, you know, you got four kids that potentially are going to die. And mom would come up to see me and stuff. And it was just a rough time. But I connected with them a lot. I felt in some ways I connected with them for life, even though life wouldn't be that long. And September 24th, 1989, and for those of you that know me, usually sports has always played a vital role in my life. Failed athlete, etc. And we're in Children's Hospital. September 24th, 1989. And the Eagles are playing the 49ers. And some of you will know this game. The Eagles destroyed Joe Montana and the 49ers. They were the defending champs. And it was the first year that George Seifert was their coach. And Buddy Ryan's Eagles, we are the it team. You know, we're going to do it now. The Niners were teams the 80s. The Eagles are going to be the team of the 90s. And in the first half, we kicked Joe Montana's ass. We sacked him six times. And we're up 21 to 10 in the fourth quarter. And the four of us, Damon, Donald, Eric, and me, were watching this game. And I'll tell you, for those three hours, man, we were all healthy. And we're watching this game, and like, the Eagles are going to win. Holy shit, we're going to beat the Niners. And Joe Montana, man, out of nowhere, had one of the greatest comebacks ever. And the Niners won 38-28. to and we're all talking shit, you know, in our room, these four sick kids. And, you know, it was weird that day because we were disappointed our Eagles lost, right? But as we're talking, you know, it was like Joe Montana had no chance to win this game. None. In the second half, the 49ers and their offensive coordinator, Mike Holmgren, they ran um, four receivers, and he, they figured, let's give Montana some space. And Montana was brutalized that day, right? But he came back and he won. And I kind of thought, like, that was a sign we were all going to survive. Like, no matter how bad the chips were down, Joe Montana's victory over our beloved Eagles was a sign we were going to fucking beat those odds and get out of Children's Hospital. And unfortunately, only two of us did. And then Eric died during the sixth term. And that just felt like a little tiny piece of me died. And I knew mom's death was coming. And I'm juggling law school, you know. I'm trying to pay off the house and Ventnor for Aunt Mary and mom. While I'm taking a full term at Cooley. And it was, it was really, you know, it's like you're living in two worlds. And that's something I deal with every day. Sometimes today, I think I'm back in Atlantic City, and I am that poor kid, and it comes out in court sometimes, like, ferociously, but it is f***ing exhausting. And Eric's death was bizarre, and it was kind of a metaphor for life, though. We enjoyed those three hours, man. We were healthy for those three hours. And I'm the one that survived of the four. And... I think I've always been defined as a survivor, but being a survivor is not always enjoyable. But I always remember that game, and what I took from that game meant so much to me. Whenever the chips have been down in court, whenever anything has been sacked against me, you're poor, you're this, you're that, 
everything I've overcome. I think back to that game when Joe Montana was down and brutalized. At the end of the game, he throws this pass to Jerry Rice, right, for the last touchdown. And it was like, it was almost like, I'm Joe Montana and you're not. Fuck you. You know, and the fact that they won by 10 points that day, that was just amazing. And the the memory I'll have with those kids was, you know. So this term of law school, and I'm, I'm a Philadelphia kid, okay? Grew up in Atlantic City, went to Eagles games my whole life. Went to my first Lions preseason game. And that was sixth term of law school. And comparing an Eagles game to a Lions game is like comparing the dead of winter in Michigan to a tropical May day in Florida. At Eagles games, if you wear opponents' jerseys, you might have to fight. One of the first Eagles games I went to was when Michael Irvin almost died on the field and fans were cheering. When Michael Irvin came into town with the Cowboys, Eagle fans wrapped up like baking soda and threw pat, throw it at him like because he was a coke addict for a short period of time. Lions games, I've seen more confrontations in church services than I have at a Lions game. It is a very quiet, very subdued thing. Usually the fans expect to lose. Even when we were bad in Philly, we expected to win. And when we didn't, we were pissed off. The Philadelphia sports fan is a different animal. And sixth turn, I went to my first Lions game here. and It's okay, but it wasn't what I was used to. You know, and as far as New Jersey went, at this time in life, Eric just died. Mom's dying. I kind of really reconnected with the church for a while, which I'm not connected to the church today. Um, And I went to go talk to Father Sullivan about it. And I told Sullivan, who was my childhood pastor, who I defended, and that's a story that many of you know. I said, I don't know. I said, you know, Mom's dying, and Eric died. I explained the story to him as I'm buying him dinner on my term break. And he said to me, well, you know, people die. That kid, you know, he was sick for a long time. What'd you expect? You know, and this was like a man of God saying this. And it was really... <laughs> God, it's amazing how people can be so focused on themselves. You know, when somebody calls you to talk, whether that you care about that person or not, you should take a few minutes. No matter how busy I am, if somebody needs to talk, I'm going to make time because you just never know what's going on inside someone's head. That conversation with them for 10 minutes or whatever could save them or could save somebody else you don't know. So if somebody calls you in need, I would recommend taking the call. I was in need. I tried to talk to Father Sullivan. He blew me off. Like, okay, I'll just throw myself into my work. It was very surreal. You know, Sixth Term had so much death going on. I guess the biggest thing I'll take from that term is going back to that game. And guys, I know some of you I'm close with have gone through a lot lately. Life sucks sometimes. we got to fight through. But I always think of Damon, Donald, and Eric. And the beauty of sports is, no matter how sick we are, what's going on, sports can be our escape. Those kids were healthy during that game. And watching Joe Montana come back, even though it was against our beloved birds, the game's never over until there's no time left on the clock. And if you look up that game, just watch Montana. Watch the way people came together. Watch the way the Niners didn't throw in the tail. You know what? It was the third game of the season. They were 2-0. and They're on the road. They're getting their ass kicked. It would have been real easy to just say to hell with this. So what? We're 2-1. and Let's just go fight next week. They didn't do that. They fought like hell. And for a minute, I really felt that was a sign that all four of the kids in that hospital bed were going to make it out. At the very least, 
there was some peace in those three hours. At the very most, it gave us all hope, and sometimes hope's a big thing. When people ask me, um, coming full circle, why I got so deeply involved with the Bobby Reyes case and how that whole thing went down, I kind of felt like, in some ways, it was bringing me back to Damon, Donald, and Eric. And I thought about them so much. I hadn't thought about Damon, Donald, and Eric in a while when I got involved in Bobby's case, but I kind of relived that during a couple weeks. And, uh, yeah, that happened. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed.